0: Hey everyone, Pastor Matt here. You are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Canton. Our prayer is that the Word of God would both transform you and equip you to live a life unleashed for the glory of God. Our desire is that this content would not be a substitute for your regular gathering with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, that it would be a supplemental boost to encourage you as you seek to follow Jesus. Thanks for listening. Now grab your Bible, and let's jump into Scripture together. Open up to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And uh, this week, uh, this is is where we're going to be tonight, and then on... Good Friday, and then we'll read another section um, on Easter Sunday. And uh, next week, we're going to talk specifically about why why the resurrection matters. Um, And so, if you're someone who kind of looks ahead and prepares, uh, I want to encourage you this week, uh, we're going to go... Uh, Through verse 44 of Luke 19 today, but then I I would encourage you to read uh, All the way through chapter 23 this week And then if you want to get really ahead before next sunday you can read first corinthians 15 because that's where we're gonna Focus next sunday as we celebrate the resurrection together but uh, oftentimes, we have the resurrection kind of fixated in our minds, which is a good thing. But it's a special day for us to start a uh, Palm Sunday with a celebration, but also recognition of the beginning of this journey to the cross. Uh, now, we need to understand some things here th- about Jesus and the fact that uh, Jesus wasn't born and kind of alienated from everyone, and then all of a sudden he's headed to Jerusalem and to the cross. Um, Jesus has been actively doing ministry uh, for some time by the point we get to Luke chapter 19. And if you if you wonder what that looks like, uh, you could challenge yourself to read the Gospel of Luke, or any of the Gospels, and see just what the extent of that looked like. But Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is on his way up to Jerusalem, and he's teaching his disciples along the way, meeting in homes with sinners. And in fact, just before where we're going to pick up this narrative in verse 28 of Luke 19, uh, at the beginning of chapter 19, you have the well-known story of a small man named who? Zacchaeus. Everyone say Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was most well known for being this guy who wanted to see Jesus so desperately climbed into a tree To see him and Jesus uh, Jesus says to him come down Zacchaeus. I'm going to come to your house Um, Personal personal pet peeve here when we when we teach kids this song Zacchaeus was a wee little man. It almost makes Jesus out to be this really angry guy that Zacchaeus is in the tree You ever notice that? Zacchaeus, you come down. <laughs> I just I just don't feel like that's how Jesus said it. <laughs> but kids love it. It's like this one moment I boss people around. You come down. Anyway, I digress. But this really Jesus persona in this is actually what is really aggravating the religious leaders of the day. Well, how can this man say he's a holy holy guy, and he's, he's not just meeting with, he's, he's having dinner with sinners. How can this be? And so they're calling him out. They have a problem with Jesus because of these types of things. So it's appropriate that in Luke's gospel, right before Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, he meets with Zacchaeus in his home. And Zacchaeus bears the brunt of this, and Then he goes on to tell this parable and speaks in light of the kingdom that is to come. And and this is all happening before Jesus enters in. Now, the interesting note here, and I'm just kind of painting some background so you understand more what's going on. The religious leaders are upset with Jesus. The disciples, those who are following Jesus' teachings, are kind of confused And it would be an appropriate question to ask, what is the confusion? Well, this is where we see in Luke chapter 19, verse 11. So go there briefly. uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 11. It says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear when? Immediately. So there's confusion here, and you're going to see that confusion lived out here in a moment. Where Jesus is going to bring about the kingdom of God right now. His kingdom, His reign, His rule is going to be established immediately. This actually coincides, if you were to read this same account in Matthew's Gospel, it's right before Jesus' triumphal entry in Matthew chapter 20 that he has a couple of his disciples that actually come up and and they're like, Jesus, which one of us is going to sit next to you in your kingdom? So it doesn't take much work for us to pause and recognize the mentality of the disciples is Jesus is going to take over, he's going to reign, and we're his closest friends. This is going to turn out well for us. And what we see take place is we're going to read the account here of Jesus' triumphal entry. We're going to focus primarily today as we get through that on Jesus' response when he enters Jerusalem. Because oftentimes we focus a lot on the people's response, but we lose sight of how Jesus responded in the midst of this. Um, The question I want us to wrestle with today, on Palm Sunday, 2023 is what does peace look like? What does peace look like and where does it come from? What does peace look like and where does it come from? We so quickly become prone to fixate on solutions related to peace and what will bring it about. Uh, We so quickly jump to our own ideas, family. And conclusions without really pausing and considering the things that make for lasting, eternal Peace and as we wrestle with that i'm going to give you the answer to that question up front because it's the thing I want you to grab hold of today if you get nothing else If you if you miss everything I want you to grab this It's that lasting peace is found in christ alone Lasting peace is found in christ alone And you're we're, we're going to unpack and see why that is visibly seen in the words of Christ as we walk through this. So the first, the, really the first step of this is preparations. So I'm going to read verses 28 through 35 and paint kind of this picture that they've been on this journey for uh, about three years with Jesus. He's done all these miraculous signs and works. and They're on their way to Jerusalem for Passover, They're traveling that direction. This is why we coincide our observance uh, this week where we're going to experience what Passover was, because that was a part of this week before Jesus was crucified. And so, Luke chapter 19, verse 28 said, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount which is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, And they said, the Lord has need of it, and they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. <clears throat> now, if you read this account in the other Gospels, you find out this was not an ordinary colt. So it was a donkey. It was a donkey. And it raises this question. We, Many of us have seen these images of Jesus sitting on a donkey, Palm Sunday, there's palm branches waving, and... It raises a question, why a donkey? When you think of a king, what usually comes to mind? A horse, right? And not just any horse, like, man, horse. Like, white horse, here we go, charge. And there's something very intentional about this imagery. The, The first one of those is, it's prophetic. If you didn't know this, this is one of those important prophecies for us to recognize, is Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, is He, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the full of a donkey. This is very intentional. But understand something. There are centuries... Hundreds of years that take place between the last standing king in the line of David and the birth and ministry of Jesus. Everyone say, it's been a long time. It's been a really long time. And yet this is where the nation of Israel has their eyes fixed on this prophecy because they have been through intense captivity. They've been overrun and taken over by governing authorities that have enslaved them to their own cultures and way of being. And they've clung to this promise that our King, our Savior, is going to come and relieve us from this oppression. And one of the signs is he's going to be mounted on a donkey as he enters in. There's another significance in this, and it's, The symbolic nature of a donkey was a sign of humility in the sense that this would be someone who would be with the people, not just over them. That it would be someone who was amongst the people, not just ruling over them. And look at this emphasis in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God... So he's authoritative, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of what? A servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you look at the scope of Jesus' ministry, you see a mark of humility in his life that goes in contrast to anyone else we would look at and say, that's a king. Going as far to even command his own disciples. The first must be last. And the last must be first. People will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Washing the disciples feet which is yet to come. Modeling what it looks like to be a person of humility. But there is a contrast here that is highlighted in Matthew chapter 20. What is that contrast? The contrast is you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your what? Servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, there is so much deep-rooted meaning behind how Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Okay? So much here that we miss if we don't understand why. Why all of these details? This is why, because it not only fulfills what God has already established would take place, but even further reveals the heart and character of our Savior. He is not this authoritative overarching demanding savior and king but he is humble with the people and not only commands us to live a life of servanthood but he himself demonstrated what that looked like to begin with i love the fact that when you read the teachings of jesus there is nothing jesus commands us to do that he has not already lived and fulfilled in himself he is the example of what it looks like to live righteously. Perfectly obedient, even to death. Now, this brings us to the second piece of this narrative in verse 36, which is uh, not just preparation, but now praise. <clears throat> verse 36, it said, And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So picture this for a moment, because it's painting a picture for you. Picture, this isn't talking about Just the 12 disciples who who come and start cheering for what's taking place. It says the whole multitude of His disciples. The reality is you and I really don't have a concept of how many people at this point were so invigorated by Jesus' ministry that they're just going where Jesus went. It's the reason that we see in the Gospels 5,000 men, not including their women and children, sit and hear the teachings of Jesus they bring people longing for them to be saved because of all of these wonders they've seen is what it says. For all the mighty works that they had seen, they're just coming out in multitudes. And in recognition of Jesus' kingly authority, they're laying down, their coat, they're taking off their garments and laying them on the road. And this is where the other Gospels describe they're taking branches off of the trees and they're waving them and Laying them down. And I, I want to see... Now, I'm going to put you to the test this morning, okay? Because I compiled all the things that are recorded being said across these three accounts of Jesus' triumphal entry. Now, really what's taking place here is people are, people are cheering. And they're, they're, the, the writers of the Gospels are pulling out these phrases... As people are cheering these things, as you can imagine, people shouting these things as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem on this donkey, laying their coats out. Now, I'm not going to request that anyone lays their garments out on the floor, okay? Please stay clothed, all right? But what I do want us to try here, and we'll see how this goes, because it's going to take you getting out of your comfort zone just a little bit. Is I want us to just resound some of these phrases to get the idea of what's happening as a multitude of people are cheering upon Christ's entry just to give us a semblance of what this might have looked like, okay? So, many of you naturally are going to pick the top one. Don't say all the same thing, alright? This wasn't a chant that they're walking through, okay? Celebrate. Some of you may just, may just clap and cheer, but I want to, I want us to try And give some semblance of what this might have sounded like to immerse us back into what's happening, okay? You think you can do this with me? This is a test, okay? And we might have to do it a couple times for you to get comfortable. This is a moment where I'm going to tell you it's okay to yell in church. Okay? All right? Alright, so, we'll, we're gonna test this and see if you can pick one or several of these phrases, cheer a little, you know what, you might cheer or whistle, and then shout one of these out, and, and we're gonna, we're gonna paint this picture in our heads, okay? Alright? Everyone ready? I'm gonna to count to three, and we're gonna try it. You see if you can blow me away, okay? One, two, three. Keep it going, keep going, see? Good. All right. That was great. Nice work. I love that. So you get, you could kind of even feel in that an energy, right? And a momentum that's carrying people into Jerusalem and the city. And then all of a sudden, when you, when you capture that sound, you can, you can kind of understand The Pharisees and their grouchy attitudes. Right? So you you get this picture of what's happening. And then in verse 39 it says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why would they say that? Well, because they knew the prophecies. Oh, they knew the Old Testament. This is what they taught. So you go back to Zechariah chapter 9. They knew what Jesus was saying as he came into Jerusalem that day. He was saying what he had been saying through his ministry. He was saying, I am the Messiah. I am the one who's promised to come and bring salvation. And the Pharisees are going, "You, you need to get your disciples to be quiet. Because you are claiming something you can't claim. And Jesus kind of does a mic drop here. In verse 40, where he just he tells just them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, you cannot deny who God says I am. You cannot deny why my Father sent me. And even if all these people were silent, the very stones would cry out and testify to the truth of who I am. Now, what's really humbling about this is earlier you saw the first half of the prophecy. There's a second part to it. And we could easily make the case that the focus of the people as they cheered on Jesus' entry was on the second part. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Peace, right? War ceases. Jesus, the Messiah, brings peace. After hundreds of years being taken over by other nations and persecuted, the hope and perceived recipe for peace lay in the established reign of Jesus as physical king over Jerusalem. And there was great celebration. Yet there's a transition here that we may not expect in verse 41. That we often miss if we're not paying attention. And it is mourning. It's grief. Look at verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city. This is talking about Jesus. He the time of your visitation. Now, what Jesus does here is He's prophetic in the sense that He foretells the destruction of Israel that happens in AD 70 when the the city is just decimated. But here's the thing. (laughs) How is it that these people could have missed the time of their visitation. It's because their eyes were fixated on the wrong thing. You see, our concept is, in our own lives, we're convinced that peace is something that happens in the external world long before we realize that there's a war waging inside of me. That the peace that is brought about in Christ looks different than the peace the world would say should be. And there's still a promise of this, but it's not yet. The promise of the liberation and rule and reign of Jesus is coming, but it is not yet. But the first part, Behold, your king coming, riding on a full of a donkey. Humble and lowly is he. That's, that's fulfilled. But who do we serve? And so it raises this question: what does make for peace? The people were convinced that they had it figured out. I'm going to tell you, family, today. There are many people, even devoted followers of Jesus, who have convinced themselves they've got it figured out. And so often, we have fixated our eyes on the wrong thing. We really have. Because there will be no change in the broader scope of the world until there's heart change in our lives. It can't, it can't happen. And when we see Jesus weeping as He approaches Jerusalem, He weeps because and he, he, he makes this exclamation, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. They didn't know. They didn't have it figured out. And so in all the celebration... All the victorious chanting. You can imagine even the disciples, who had, the 12 who had been with him, are going, whoa, hey, it's happening. We're excited. Like, this is Jesus. We're his best friends. Yeah. And that's even after Jesus has told them, guys, I'm going to go away. Like, I'm not going to be with you much longer. And, and the, every time you see him doing that, they're always confused, right? What, what are you talking about? Like You have convinced us, Jesus. You have convinced us that you are the Messiah. You have made it clear, like, we're with you to the end. Well, what they meant was, we're going to go to war with you. We're going to stand with you in victory, whatever whatever cost. It's the very reason that Jesus' own disciples, when Jesus was arrested, began to take a, a posture of fighting back. Because it threw a wrench in everything that they thought in their minds was going to take place. So, what does make for peace? There's a couple of passages of Scripture I want us to fixate on this morning. Isaiah 26. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Oof. Peace comes from the mind who is stayed on the Lord. Isaiah 26, 3-4. through 4. Psalm 20, verse 7. This is constantly applicable, family. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. May that be so. May it be so. But here's the reality. Do a, do a self-check. What does your life say about what your trust is in? And I'll be the first to confess to you, there are, there are days where my life is in chaos because I have fixed my eyes on the world around me and I need to reorient myself with the One who is unmovable. Who do you trust? In John chapter 20, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered. Jesus is talking to His followers here each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you. Why? (laughs) That in me, you may have what? Peace. Everyone say peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You see the main idea is lasting peace is found in Christ alone. It's found in Him alone. The reason, church family, we have to celebrate and rejoice is because we know even more than the disciples, the multitudes who came cheering about Jesus. Like We know, and we can look at God's Word and say that we see, we see that Jesus came. But He didn't come to establish His earthly rule and reign when He came the first time. He came to liberate us from our own sin. Because the ruler that we serve is ourself. That even if, out of the blue, peace was brought to the physical world, you and I would still be in a war separated from Christ. Do you understand that? And what happens is a cycle. There will never be peace on earth outside of Christ's reign. There won't. And if you ask the question, what makes for peace? How do I pursue living a life of peace? It starts with Jesus. It is only found in Christ. Where do we look for peace in all the wrong places? Here's just a few things I wrote down. A leader who does what we want them to do. Who protects us or uh, delivers us or gives us money. You fill in the blank, okay? If we fixate on that, you're looking for peace in the wrong place. A people who lives and strives and exists in the way we think they should. If we look for peace in that, you're constantly going to be disappointed because there will always be people different than you that do things a way that you disagree with. This is what should make the church so different is that we're a community of people united in what? Christ! We're united in Jesus amongst all of the differences of opinions and perspectives amongst us that we come together and say we're united in Him who has saved us because there is no other name. Where do we look for peace in all the wrong places? A job that allows us to live the way we think we deserve. If I'm I'm looking for that to give me peace, um, if you're looking for that to give you peace, let me know because I have met multiple people in our church family that thought that was the case and they've achieved that and realized that wasn't the case. I thought being in this place in my life and having this financial stability would bring me a peace and a satisfaction, and it just doesn't. And I don't say that to discourage you, and, because, you see, we can take this two ways. We can look at that and go throw our hands up and be like, why even try? I'm just going to sit back and do nothing. Don't do that, please. That's not what God has called us to. But what He has called us to is to understand and recognize what Christ has done for us and what that should invigorate in us, and my goodness family, as we see that more plainly and recognize what we have in Jesus, the celebration that took place as we painted a picture of what was should just continue, because we know the world can be in chaos, and my peace is unchangeable. It is immovable. He didn't come that we would have wealth and prosperity as a country, a church body, or an individual. He didn't come that we would have perfect relationships with each other. He came that we might be reconciled to God the Father and have eternal life. He came that we might be freed from the bondage of our sin and transformed into the righteousness of God. He came that we might no longer search for hope or joy or peace, but might find it in Himself the greatest gift ever given. And so I ask you today, do you today know what makes for lasting peace? Do you today know what makes for lasting peace? And I just want to tell you, He is far more present then you know. He has already accomplished what you could not. And there is lasting peace in Jesus. It's in Christ alone. So, brother, sister, listener, may you believe that this is true and receive a rest peace that can only come through Jesus I'm going to ask the worship team to come <clears throat> and as they do um, I just want us to, to think about this for a moment because here's, here's the overarching applied reality of this We make a mistake if we are prone to only take words like this and apply it to our individual lives. And instead, where this really should start is here. In a community of people who say, Through Christ, we have peace with God. And so we're going to live as people who are freed from all this bondage that we put ourselves in. And simply live unashamed for the glory of the Lord. Unleashed for His purposes. Stepping into the hard situations of life. Because tribulation is going to continue to come, family. But you can have peace in the midst of the storm. Just like, I, I love the picture of Jesus as the waves are crashing around and the disciples are panicked and Jesus is where... He's asleep. He's asleep in the boat. How is that possible? Because Jesus lived out of a peace that he had with the Father and he's offered us that same peace. And it starts by us saying, okay, Lord, I surrender. I surrender my life because I've looked for peace in all the wrong places. It starts there. And then you start a journey of understanding and experiencing what peace in Christ looks like. Because it it takes a while to unpack what I've convinced myself peace is. But I'm going to tell you it's found in Christ. And we want to be a community of people who help others experience and walk and live in light of an eternal peace, not a temporary one. May that be who we are, family. And so I'm going to encourage you, if you're someone who just goes, I, I need that, okay? uh, that you make sure you talk to me today. All right? E- even if I just pray with you. Maybe you're wrestling with something really specific. Um, maybe you're here today and you know someone, a friend or a family member that's really wrestling. Can I just ask you during this last song... If that's you, and the Lord's laid someone on your heart, for you to just feel free to go and just pray over that person. Because that's what it means to be a family. To encourage them, speak life into them. And then don't let that stop here. Our King has come. And He's liberated sin and death. Amen? And we're going we're gonna to celebrate that super victoriously and big next week. But as we step into this week, for us to stop and ponder these truths and say, where am I looking for peace? And to stop and say, I surrender. And then find peace in Christ alone. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me. I'm going to pray. And we're going to sing this last song. You know, when the people shouted, Hosanna. Hosanna. It's a a word of resounding praise, but can also mean help us or save us. Appropriate when we see it in that context. And this last song, the first song we sang today was a song of praise. You are the God who saves us, worthy of all of our praises, Hosanna. This last one is going to use the same word, but it's going to set a very different tone. One of reflection and one of we would fix our eyes on how do we live this out. So may it be a prayer of ours and a cry out to the Lord to bring about a peace that only He can. Father, as we reflect on these things, may You open our eyes. Help us to walk and live in this and experience a peace from You that surpasses understanding, that goes beyond what the world would offer, that we would indeed be a people of peace. Not of our own making, but... In recognition of what you have done, Lord, we trust this to you, Jesus.